Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The S&P passed 5,000 for the first time for an all-time high. The revelation of more production problems on 50 new Boeing jets. Spirit Air Systems follows its leading customer in suspending. 2024 guidance. All eyes are on whether United will cancel its order for 100 MAX 10 jets. After billions of dollars in investment, the United States Army cancels its future armed reconnaissance aircraft and U.S. political chaos as Ukraine's uh, leadership or defense leadership or military leadership shifts. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Chusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Avalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, welcome back. I uh, hope you had a great week and are having a had a great weekend, Ron. Uh, start us off. S&P hit uh, an, another high uh, last week, although the Dow ended up, I think, a little bit down. Uh, Washington is in political chaos, unable to pass border reform or another Ukraine supplemental. We'll see what happens um, this coming week. How did the group perform against this backdrop? Yeah, you know, as, as you mentioned, the S and P uh, hit a high. It was up uh, just just about two and a half percent on the week. If you look across our group, um, defense you know, broadly did better than uh, than commercial. Um, you know, some of the best performers on the week: General Dynamics was up over a percent, Northrop nearly two percent, um, Spirit Aerosystems after reporting was up five percent. But remember, they were down a lot, so it was just kind of just normalizing there. Um, you know, the real winner on the week actually was Palantir, who reported. Uh, Palantir was up. 49.3% on the week, right? So almost 50% on the week. Um, uh, the 10-year yield continues to climb higher. Um, the 10-year yield ended the week at 4.2. Uh, if you just remember, not that long ago, it was below 4%. So it's it's edging higher as the market's starting to, you know, I think, figure out that the, the Fed might be slower to cut than was being discounted in. WTI crude was at $76. So Vagio, I will give you one guess on where Brent crude was. Five dollars, five dollars higher. Yeah, yeah. There you go, eighty-one. Um, and then uh, the the VIX. You know, even uh, if I'm asked the same question enough times, I'll get the answer. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Five dollars higher. Um, you know, sometimes they spread, but they just haven't in a very long time. And 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 the VIX ended the week uh, at it, at at its lows. You know, between twelve and thirteen. So you know, the, the markets you know pretty pretty ebullient, uh, as they would say. Um, and yeah, uh, so you know, when, you, when you think about some of the stuff, the dynamics this week, uh, some of the underperformers were uh, Bombardier. They reported there was some fear about their cash flow outlook, and that that really kind of hit them hard. Um, and outside of that, I, I think that was the week we had. You know, we had a bunch of earnings, um, but you know, it was a pretty you know medium eventful week for for the sector. Uh, and I should point out, right, Pal Palantir had a blockbuster uh, fourth uh, quarter, 20% up uh, last year. And so the r results um, were were pretty uh, strong. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny name. Also. It's a funny name because it's, you know, we're one of the few folks that cover it out of our aerospace and defense coverage. There's a lot of software people who cover it. The software right. people tend to hate it. It, it. it tends to get a large short interest. So when they actually... And they have now several times when they put up good numbers that beat expectations, a lot of shorts have to cover and you see this kind of price action. 
Uh, and it's also being identified now as was one of the plays on on AI, as is Booz Allen, and there's some other names in our coverage that are are you know, recognized as you know, AI plays, and AI is becoming a bigger theme. Um, but they posted good numbers; they had a good outlook. There was a lot of shorts, so the stock just ripped. Sash, uh, walk us through uh, in uh, Europe. Obviously, um, you know one underlying broader concern is what happens to the U.S. presidential election, and I think we'll get to that later in the program. Uh, but uh, give us your sense on um, how uh, the aerospace and defense group uh, performed against the broader market in Europe. Part of the question we're going to talk about later was reflected in share prices this week. Defense was incredibly strong, civil less so. Defense outperformed civil roughly three to one. Uh, defense stocks on average up nearly 4% and civil stocks up percent and a bit. Um, it was a remarkable week for particularly small and mid-cap defense stocks. Um, interestingly, the only two defense stocks that were down were French, uh, Dassault Aviation and Thales. Now, Dassault owns part of Thales, but Thales clearly is a major subcontractor to Dassault. So it's always difficult to work out cause and effect on that. Um, I suspect that ultimately Dassault caught uh, a bit of a cold from the very, very poor market reaction to Bombardier's figures uh, this week. Remember, they're both competing in the same business, business jet space. Um, uh, but Thales has been underperforming now. Um, you know, it's basically flat on the year when the European average is up 10%. And I suspect there's an element there of uh, investors just not thinking that it's a terribly um, attractive or terribly direct play on European defence rearmament because they keep on going out and buying quite expensive civil software companies. Uh, so that was fascinating. But then look at the upside. Um, we had a series of companies, I mean, the, the two Nordic companies, Kongsberg and Saab, both reported absolutely blowout numbers and huge guidance increases. Kongsberg up 11%, Saab up uh, 6%. Saab have raised their medium term guidance for revenue growth. Uh, from 10% to 15% per annum. And remember that 15 months ago, I before the Ukrainian war, um, uh, their guidance was for 5% uh, revenue growth. This is what a defence upcycle looks like. Kongsberg putting in a ton of capacity for, um, uh, for production, particularly of the uh, JSM, uh, uh, NSM uh, anti-ship uh, missiles. Um, and... You know, I think this is just sending such a strong signal about the degree to which European countries are starting to take uh, defence very seriously. And you're seeing it in the numbers in a way that we haven't done before. Other big performers this week, Hensolt up uh, 7.5%. Uh, seven they had a very, very strong Q4 for orders. They uh, pre-announced on that. Um, and even um, uh, Kinetic, which was a dreadful performer last year, by far the weakest performer, up um, up 4%. They're now up 19% on the year. So there's a bit of mean reversion going on there. Leonardo had a good week. But overall, European defence is on an absolute rip at the moment. I'm not convinced that's good for humanity, but it's tremendously good for investors in European defence stocks. And, 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 and just really quickly, how much of this is Russia and how much of this is the European fear, uh, right, that Joe Biden is going to lose the election in the United States and it's going to be Donald Trump again? Well, that's the same thing, isn't it? There's, right. there's, there's no, what that is, is saying... Um, that the US will not come to Europe's aid in the uh, in the event of uh, Russian aggression. And we'd better start um, doing a ton more on our own because we cannot rely on the 7th Cavalry or whoever else to come to our aid, as you have done for the, you know, the last 80 years. We can't rely on that anymore. Um, and it was very interesting 
you know, just being in Sweden this week, the palpable sense of real fear, and apparently it's even worse if you're in Finland, that your border is no longer secure uh, from, from the Russians and that, you know, the US may not be around to, to, to do what we've always expected it to. Uh, and we'll uh, get to that later because you had two fascinating field trips, once, uh, one to Devonport. Uh, it's absolutely uh, lovely uh, down there uh, and then up uh, to Sweden as well, where it's also lovely. Um, Richard, um, you and Ron were both in uh, Seattle for the Pacific Northwest Aerospace uh, Alliance, uh, one of their uh, conferences, always a, a terrific event. You also made it down to L.A. Both of you came away with profound insights after spending a week in the Pacific uh, Northwest uh, and talking to Boeing people and Boeing suppliers and the entire ecosystem out there. This, the, you know, the, there is now 50 new uh, Boeing aircraft uh, that appear uh, to have uh, production problems. Uh, my sense always is if, if you have a bolt loose, you have a problem. If you have this many stuff, it, it's just the tip of a broader iceberg, right? It's not an issue. We're seeing problems across the uh, ecosystem. I hang a lot of this on Boeing. You set the right tone as the OEM, as the prime. Everybody else follows. You beat everybody up. You pressure them on price to the point where they've got to cut their own corners. And then you have challenges at Spirit and people who are supplying Spirit. I'm not tarring everybody with the same brush. I'm just saying it's, you know, I so I don't know why we're surprised. I think we're going to see... More things happen. Ron, I think a long time ago, you said this is like cockroaches. You see a cockroach, there are more cockroaches. It's not a cockroach. You have a problem. Um, Richard, how do we need to be looking at this storyline? Right, Spirit suspended guidance. Folks are being contrite. That's uh, that's a good thing. But for, I, I don't think I've ever gotten as many texts from people saying, oh my God, I'm on a max. Should I be near a window? You know, I'm near a window. Oh God. Oh, or thank God I'm on an Airbus, an Embraer, or a Douglas, and I don't need to worry about this, right? Where where, where do you see the storyline, and what did you pick up when you were in Seattle about the magnitude of the problem, and whether anybody is doing anything to actually, you know, like aside from publicly making the right statements, whether you're hearing from Boeing people that, that the right things are happening? Yeah, I uh, had the pleasure of speaking with an awful lot of folks. Um, it was it was quite the long uh, but very rewarding week. I think uh, Ron had the same sort of experience. Um, it is astonishing to me, you know, I'll say on the positive side, just, you know, Boeing still has, despite the kind of callow mistreatment they've received by top management, still has some really good people working really hard. And they've got really good products and technologies. You know, I don't know whether this is an extremely good thing or an extremely bad thing, but the problem is pretty easy to rectify. The folks at the top are completely disconnected. And indeed, you know, the only possible explanation I've got is that they're working for Airbus secretly. It's just kind of bizarre. Uh, I mean, all you'd have to do is change that top leadership and things would be I think much better quickly because you've still got a lot of talent at Boeing and they're willing to work hard to undo the very bad damage that has been inflicted upon the company, the industry by top leadership. You know, the alternative, of course, top leadership could simply say, oh boy, did we do bad. Uh, we're going to change our tune. That would be fine too. I'd take anything except what's going on right now. You know, you look at 
the waves of mistreatment that has been that have been inflicted upon the workforce and the supply chain over the past at least you know since when Jim McNerney started he was sort of the bringer of this Calhoun is the you know continuer of it with Dennis Millenberg perhaps as this you know I, I don't know what that was just an inter- inter- intermezzo you know, the intermezzo the, uh... you know not a bad guy you still people here the most common phrase like control f1 on their computers is at least he was an engineer you know <laughs> or something like that but you know i mean the idea of using your supply chain as an atm badly under resource them make sure that they are completely responsible for everything including finding the necessary working capital to do an unprecedented ramp after they were left holding the bag with tons of inventory i mean looking back it's like this is a recipe for failure and, you know, meanwhile, you've got this badly alienated workforce that's looking at top management that's only concerned with financial abstractions and exactly nothing else. I mean, the level of anger is <laughs> you can feel it in waves, even as though even as many of them continue to do really hard and good work, you can't help but feel genuinely sympathetic. Uh, and it also kind of restores your faith that, hey, this industry uh, is filled with really great people bad people hijacked that very good part of the industry and that needs to change if it doesn't well you're just going to see the company lurch from crisis to crisis quality escape to quality escape bad decision to bad decision i don't know how this winds up i don't know how shareholders put up with it i don't know where the hell the board is it's just a bizarre set of circumstances, but there are Look, some fascinating people to talk to. They've been they've been putting up with this, right? We have been talking about this, and we know that they're listening to this program, among many others, right? N- none of this is new. They're okay with it because they've been making money off of it, right? I mean, it, it doesn't matter. People made a lot of money as McDonnell Douglas was going down the drain. Even but towards that's the no very end, the they were making money. That's no longer the case. Boeing is Boeing stock is. I'll let Ron, of course, okay. uh, say more True. smart things. Fair. But come on, look at Boeing stock. And as a matter of fact, you know, some people have a a bear case scenario of you know like one third off. Like it, the trajectory Correct. is not the, the trend is not your friend. Uh, it, it, I I would uh, agree with you with that, Ron. Uh, give us your take on what you learned there, including what is an absolute bombshell that ranks with the elimination of strategy as almost criminal malfeasance uh, by corporate leadership. And I'm trying to be as charitable as I can about this. Yeah, I mean, uh, a couple things. I mean, I agree with pretty much everything Richard said. Uh, I mean, one of my broad takeaways is, you know, you you always try to get a sense of morale, how how it is. And um, I I have not been at an event, and, and Richard, correct me if you disagree with this, where morale among kind of the rank and file that I know was worse. I mean, it really does appear that you've got a lot of good people who've been there a long time who are looking for the exits. And um, that just really, really makes me sad, right? Because, um, you know, you, you've got people who, you know, they're, vested careers and lifetimes there and, and whatever else. But I mean, that, that I was honestly kind of surprised by that. Um, and then, you know, some of the other things you, you learn, you know, they're, you know, Boeing blew out their competitive intelligence team, which is quite frankly, kind of mind numbing, right? Like, how do you do that? Um, you really should know what's going on at Airbus, right? You'd think. Um, and, and, and then, you know, 
you know, other, other things like that. Um, you know, how are you going to be thinking about your negotiation with the uh, IAM coming up? Uh, that's going to heat up the summer. Uh, the IAM's current contract ends on September 12th. Do you have strategy people looking at that? You did, but you blew them out, right? So who's looking at that now? Um, so there's a, a lot of open questions around, you know, if you're not critically looking at your biggest competitor, um, if you're not critically looking at maybe potential new competitors, uh, and if you're not really thinking hard about how you're going to negotiate with labor, I don't see how that sets you up in a in a good situation, to, to, to be blunt. At the same time, morale is as low as I've ever seen it or felt it. Um, so it's, you know, just broadly, it's, it's it doesn't appear to be be a good mix. Uh, I'd say, you know, in the investment community, you know, the, the view is, um, still is, and it's true, right? You have, you have two players, you have a, a very, you know, buoyant market for commercial aircraft. Um, you know, Narabot is, is, as we all know, it's super strong in the narrow body world. And, um, you're starting to see truly a recovery in, in the wide body world. Um, so, you know, you, you can benefit, you know, both players can benefit from it. Um, but, the real question becomes, I think, ultimately, um, even though the street tends to be very short-term focused, everybody has a, a terminal value in their model. And what happens to that terminal value? Because a lot of your valuation is ultimately, it's ultimately calculated by your terminal value. And that terminal value, if you're honest with yourself, is driving the multiples you put on things. Uh, and at some point, the street will figure out that Hmm. Maybe that terminal value isn't where we thought it once was. Uh, in, indeed, uh, fascinating. Um, Sash, I'm going to come to you in just a minute, but a quick word from our sponsors: the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rhine Metal. Sash, um, any comment you have on this? And Bridges, to uh, what are your expectations? Uh, from Airbus, you had a terrific note. They report on the fifteenth. Um, you know, give us give us your sense on on Boeing and what is it we should expect to hear from Airbus. Uh, look, I mean, I'm I'm listening to what Richard and Ron said. With uh, I'm, you know, it, it's depressing stuff. We don't want to see this industry uh, suffer from you know effective you know from, from active underperformance by one of its most important players. That, you know, that's a, that's an awful outcome to have. Uh, but it's very very difficult to turn this sort of thing around. I mean, in terms of the competitive dynamic, historically, our view had been that Airbus would be very, very happy to sit sit back, um, frankly, watch, watch what is going on in Seattle with a degree of amazement, keep on churning out A321neos, um, bigger and bigger mix, and they would just make more and more money. I'm beginning to wonder whether that's actually the case or not. And it's going to be really interesting to hear from management this uh, upcoming week, because it's not going to be acceptable for the aviation industry to keep on flying the same aircraft and buying the same aircraft in the 2030s that it bought in the 2020s and actually, you know, in the in the late 20 teens. Um, there's no way this industry will get anywhere near net zero if everybody is still buying very good, but still buying A321 Neos in uh, 2032, 2033. And I think that Airbus is going to have now to launch uh, relatively early some sort of you know, derivative, if only to show willing to sh and, right. uh, you know, to show that they get that the industry has to make a big contribution uh, to net zero. 
that's not an Airbus's interest. Um, being having second mover advantage has always been something that Airbus wanted to keep. But I think time is actually running out for both sides in that respect. So I mean, just more broadly on you know Airbus and upcoming results, um, they had a, you know we we talked about this before. They had a very very good end to. Uh, uh, 2023. I mean, they were pretty cautious on their guidance. They handsomely beat it, you know, 15 extra aircraft. Um, what are the big issues? Big issue is that despite that strong end to 2023, the A320neo family production rate, and remember, this is aircraft coming out of uh, Toulouse, Hamburg, Tianjin, Mobile, so it's a, you know, there's there's eight different final assembly lines that are uh, knocking these out. But the the production rate, or rather the deliveries rate, still isn't going up to where it should be. Um, Airbus has been talking about, or historically talked about, producing 65 aircraft a month by this stage, um, and they're at about 48. Now, there's a gap between putting aircraft into production and delivering them, and it's somewhere between six and nine months for a narrow body. But unless we see a big acceleration in deliveries by the end of the first half and into Q3, it would suggest to me that the production targets they've set for 2025, 2026, you know, 75 aircraft a month for the AP20 line are almost unreachable. And the other thing that we're going to watch really closely is just going to be what they say about their uh, deliveries guidance for this year. Our suspicion, given, you know, that the production rate is turning up but too slowly, is that they won't be terribly bullish about, uh, about deliveries. Um, eight, you know, they did 735 last year. 800 would be a good number, but I'm not sure that some investors will think that. I think investors, you know, the whisper number is probably closer to 850. That feels to us to be a terribly long way. So it's going to be a really interesting uh, announcement from Cor. Um, I I think it's uh, astonishing that they have 12 years of backlog uh, at this point, which is an, an enviable uh, position ultimately uh, to uh, be in. And right there, the leader, and they're still talking about going to a new airplane by 2035, which is what's been broached by by management. Uh, Ron and, and Richard want to get your sense on what are your guys' expectations uh, and whether or not the company is going to be the you know end up the leader because it has been the follower on some of this, right? And you can always uh, you know you you know Boeing in some cases has been the first mover disadvantage uh, in in a in a in a sense. Um, where, where does this go and what are your guys' expectations? And does this, you know, change any of the dynamic calculations in Arlington and Longbridge from Boeing management? I mean, are they still going to be steadfast? You know, now are they going to use that and say, well, you know, we got our arms full with the challenges we've got and, you know, we're not going to do it or we're looking at trust wing or, you know, I mean, they're not even on blended wing body at this point. That's a jet zero North of Grumman thing. Right. I mean, and I'm sorry, I, I still think someday you're, future airplane could be could be a Northrop that you get on. Why not? Once upon a time, it was a Douglas and that doesn't exist. Go ahead. Or a Sud Aviacion or anything else, right? I mean, names change, nameplates change. Go ahead. Uh, uh, maybe Richard and then Ron. First of all, let's get rid of the idea that Boeing management would pay attention to anything, at least at the top. These are the people who got rid of the strategy department. How can you respond to competitive threats? The very idea is uh, oxymoronic or, or something. So uh, you, know, you could have you could have a complete revolution in aircraft design brought out by a global consortium aided by Venusians or something. And they'd be like, but we still get another good quarter of max deliveries, right? 
uh, and that would be fine with them. It's, you know, so forget that. The they, aircraft powerhouse that are the Venusians are going to be coming into this market. Yeah, maybe the Andromedans are your cup of tea. I don't know. But, uh, okay. you know, well, the, the idea is that it doesn't, the, the concept of competitive threat is not in their vocabulary anymore by design. Again, who are they really working for? I'd like to know. But in terms of Airbus, yeah, you know, John Ostrow at the Air Current, of course, broke uh, that they're aggressively moving towards next generation single aisle. Of course they are. They should be. <laughs> um, you know, you've got a Boeing trust brace wing in part because the government is funding it. Maybe, maybe not. It's not really what you call the same as product development. It's interesting experience, interesting experiment. But, you know, right now, Airbus is going to do a really good job. They have a strategy department. They have a, 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 a customer assessment department that looks carefully at what people want for a next generation jet. They've got the manpower and, and woman power to get out there and talk to people and see what the next generation should look like. They're going to move aggressively forward. Uh, what I agree completely with you, though, Venusians aside, that it's not going to be 80% in 2040 Airbus wins. End of story something's going to come along. And I really like Jet Zero. I like the idea of a design department working with a U.S. Defense Prime and, and of course, a mezzanine contractor like GE or RTX or whoever else coming up with something. Something's going to happen. Um, and Boeing will play for the next couple of years unless management changes, which would be nice. Airbus will keep powering through as the you know producer of majority the majority of aircraft for decades to come. But something will happen. Ron? If you look at the market for commercial airplanes, it's too big for something not to happen. So if Boeing doesn't do what we hope they would do, somebody else will. Um, and we've discussed you know many many different options that could play out certain certain ways. Um, I'll be clear about this though. I, I doubt it's the Chinese. I doubt it's the Russians. Right. Um, but you know you know could it be uh, Jet Zero? Could it be Embraer team with somebody else? Could, there could be a, a lot of could be, but the market's just too big for it to be ignored. Um, so, you know, ultimately I hope Boeing does do the right thing. The company I always come back to, and I'd say this to investors all the time, the best airplane company in the commercial airplane company in the world, hands down, is Gulfstream. And what does Gulfstream do very, very well? One, they take care of their customers. They own their aftermarket. They own their customers. They're super loyal to their customers. Their customers are super loyal to them. Funny how that works, right? right? Two, they're always working on a new airplane. Always. They don't ramp up their engineering force and ramp it down. They're always developing something continuously over time. So you don't end up in these situations where you have engineering muscle that hasn't been flexed and this and that. They're always doing that. Um, and it it works well for them. It would work well for anybody um, and it and it seems that Airbus is taking on that kind of strategy, right? Of course, we're an airplane company. Of course, we're going to be looking at the next generation and not just looking at it in some sort of, you know, the theoretical way. We're actually looking at it. That's what airplane right. companies do. So, like I've said many times, if, if Boeing wants to position itself as the premier aerospace and defense company in the world, they have to develop stuff. And right now, one of the stuff they have to develop is a new airplane, and that will bring them you know, goodness with their employees, goodness with their customers. And I do think in the longer term, goodness with their investors, although at first their investors will probably puke on it, but sooner or later, the investors will come around. 
Uh, I would uh, point out that Dassault's philosophy is a little bit similar as well, right? Don't have massive fluctuations in workforce. And that unfortunately drives them to go ultra slow uh, in any ramp situation because they're like, well, we, we don't want to bring aboard a whole bunch of more people uh, than we uh, and, and, end and, up getting rid of it at and, some point. And one go thing I, I might add, and I think this is important because this actually did come up a lot in conversation in Seattle is, you know, workforce issues at, at you know, Boeing and suppliers and across the industry. And the companies that managed it best were ones that worked hard to preserve their workforce. So let me give a shout out to, you know, the, you know, the folks at Heiko, because what Heiko did during the downturn, and we didn't hear many companies, if any other companies really kind of do this, at least in aerospace, they said to their workforce, you know what, guys, it's tough right now. We're going to cut back your hours, but we're going to keep you all. And they kept them all. And when things ramp back up, guess what? They had a seasoned workforce that was in place and was loyal. And that's just, from my perspective, good management. Uh, couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Uh, one of the uh, most interesting conversations I ever had in my uh, career was with Serge Dassault uh, about um, how uh, how to do this the right way to do it. And he, his point was, it's all about the people. Hire the best people, take care of them. Make sure you keep them on on side. Don't have big fluctuations. Don't get rid of valued longtime suppliers just because their cost goes up. Their cost is going to go up. It's much cheaper to just pay the extra ten cents, pay the extra ten bucks, uh, as opposed to get rid of them and all the chaos it causes and recertifying a new supplier and then finding out they can't deliver and then you got to go back to the old guy anyway. I mean, it it was, um, you know, I mean, I always thought. It was a conversation with somebody who profoundly got it uh, at a time when, when um, unfortunately, a whole bunch of psychological experimentation was going on at uh, Boeing uh, and other companies. Um, Sash, I'm going to give uh, you an opportunity to talk about your uh, really awesome uh, road trip uh, last week. You went down uh, to Devonport. Uh, for Babcock's uh, Capital Markets Day, and then you ended up going up to Scandinavia uh, and spending some time with the good folks at Saab. Walk us through what sort of the big clear uh, takeaways were from both of those trips. Yeah, thank you. I mean, listen, I'm I'm sad enough that I can't think of many things more exciting than going around a submarine overhaul yard. It's very, very impressive stuff, particularly when you see big ballistic missile and, and, uh, and nuclear attack submarines being uh, being maintained. Uh, and, you know, from a historical point of view, being maintained in docks that were built in the uh, late 19th century and the huge scale of upgrade work going uh, on at Babcock's Devonport business to, uh, you know, to bring those up to the uh, to, to the 21st century. I mean, they're, they're, you know, there's nearly a billion and a half uh, pounds being spent just updating uh, two docks to uh, improve throughputs. I mean, what, you know, what were my uh, takeaways from this? I mean, Babcock overhauls all Royal Navy submarines, over 50% of the surface fleet. It's an absolutely core part of keeping the Royal Navy going. And it's also then got, you know, very important um, land and aviation businesses as well. But, you know, the, the big thing here is submarine overhauls are, are probably going to double in volume over the next, uh, you know, five to seven years or so. And why is that important? That's important because that puts more submarines uh, for the Royal Navy back in the water sooner and in better condition. And when you've got a fleet that is sadly, you know, uh, even including the ballistic missile submarines only in just in double digits, boy, you need pro you need availability 
uh, and you need productivity. Well, the money's going in and, and I suspect they'll, they'll go there. The big prize after that, of course, is AUKUS. Um, very impressive when you see these uh, you know, models of, of what they're going to do with one of the um, docks. Have a look at the model of the submarine that's fitting into this dock. Doesn't have a conventional Royal Naval um, uh, shaped tail. It's a cross tail. Uh, what they're showing is they're already spending and thinking about uh, the AUKUS class of submarines that are going to be built by the uh, UK and Australia, even you know, 15, 20 years out. That's, that's long-term planning for you, but it needs to be because the AUKUS class is currently uh, scheduled to be nearly 20 boats, uh, which, which you know, right. if the UK and Australia go ahead with it, is absolutely enormous. So I mean, that was, that, that was the real eye-opener for me. But the other one was just then at, at the, I'm afraid, the other end of the nuclear chain, which is the degree to which with the um, effective nationalisation of the UK's atomic weapons establishment, which was up to a, uh, to a year and a half ago, run by a consortium of Lockheed Martin, Jacobs and Serco, uh, um, there's now a great deal of work uh, being put out to companies like Babcock to upgrade the um, uh, the all of the facilities at AWE, including production of fissile material. Um, I've never seen that in a company presentation before. Uh, but so you can just see how the UK spending on nuclear, which at the moment is dominating the defence budget, and that's a problem if you're on conventional stuff, but the UK spending on nuclear is really starting to come through now in a way that probably didn't look very likely two, three years uh, earlier than this. The other point I would just make is that the Royal Navy needs recapitalization. It's oldest ships, Type 23 frigates, which have been a fantastic design and have served brilliantly for over 30 years but they are they're genuinely dropping um or, or you know the things are starting to, to leak and everything um they are just too tired they were never meant to last for 35 years working in tropical places um so the uk's got two new classes of frigates underway the type 26 anti-submarine warfare frigate i don't know why we call it a frigate the damn thing's going to weigh between eight and ten thousand tons um but you know that's still what it's being called that'll be a tr tremendously capable uh, frigate, and that's why Australia and Canada are buying it. And then the Type 31 general purpose frigate, which Babcock are building. The way that they talk about approaching the cost of manufacture for Type 31 um, is coming close to sort of breaking the paradigm of surface ships costing more and more and more every single class that goes through. I don't think they've got there yet, but they the implication is something we're doing some work on is that the learning curve on the Type 31, and it's not been an easy program, could end up producing a ship that is very, very competitive. And um, they've already sold five licenses for that before the first Royal Navy ship even goes in the water. Suggests that other nations are looking at it and thinking, do you know what? It's good enough and it will give us capability when we need it, rather than the capability that we would dream of five, ten years hence. Uh, that's a really interesting story as well. So perhaps we then move from... Um, what yeah, a, give us uh, give us a sense. Uh, but by the way, I'm, it's very exciting to see all the shipbuilding work. And then the idea behind the Type Thirty One was for, but both on the Type Twenty Six and the Type Thirty One were were that they would be great export uh, sh uh, ships and get the UK back into that dominant uh, uh, global export market uh, for new build export ships, as opposed to where the US was, which was you know the exporting of um, existing, but more often than not existing ships. Although the the Fig Seven sort of change that dynamic. And I one would argue the Charles F. Adams class without becoming too much, much of a navalist here changed it as well. Walk, walk us through a little bit what you heard uh, when you were up in Scandinavia at Saab. 
yeah, what a, I mean, not a contrast, but really different messages there. So, you know, I said earlier on Saba, um, they had a blowout fourth quarter. They had a really good 2023. Um, orders are just coming in way ahead of our forecasts. They've raised their guidance. You know, here's, here's a defence company growing at 15% compound. I didn't expect to see that a couple of years ago. You know, that 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 is what defence upcycles look like if you're uh, well exposed to them. Um, what fascinated me uh, was the nature of the discussion, the nature of the discourse in Sweden uh, about the threat from Russia. And, you know, to put it terribly bluntly, you know, people in Sweden are prepared to talk and they take no pleasure from it about the risk of war with Russia and the risk of war with Russia within a small number of years, not sort of, you know, a five, 10 year warning period, which has been the traditional way that um politicians like to talk about things but much sooner than that and if you go over the borders of finland boy they're talking about it within you know a couple of years and therefore they are they are thinking the unthinkable they're starting to talk about whether to bring conscription back again they're looking at right. the force structures required so in the swedish navy which is you know, very very small but um you know it's got five corvettes and uh, four submarines it's going to be 50 percent bigger by the end of the decade or early 2030s uh, that's promising. I bet we see the same thing occurring in the Swedish Air Force. And the force structure on land is <clears throat> is having to change. Now, our thesis is that the nearer you are to Russia, the more obvious, the more apparent the, the threat is. And I think it's becoming very apparent that not only did um, uh, you know Ukraine lose the, the big counteroffensive or uh, counteroffensives uh, in the summer of 2023, but that we in the West, I think, got a bit carried away by the amount of equipment we gave and, you know, the momentum in terms of transfers of equipment. And we underestimated the ability of the Russian defence uh, system to ramp up production. Well, I didn't hear any of that over op optimism in Sweden. I think they realised that Russia is just producing millions of artillery shells where Europe is producing hundreds of thousands. The US will get up to a million probably by the by early 2025. But overall, you know, Russia could still be out producing the US and Europe combined by between two and three to one. That's that's right. pretty chilling stuff. Um, and it, all of this, I think, is focusing some politicians' minds more in the north and east of Europe than necessarily in the west of Europe on uh, how do we spend, uh, where do we spend it and um, how quickly. And at the back of all this, the biggest single thing that I think really, you know, I, this is my takeaway from Stockholm anyway, the thing that really worries them is they are not confident that if there was a war, that a President Trump uh, government would support NATO in the way that we've always come to expect. The 7th Cavalry comes to our, uh, to our Europe's aid. Now, you could argue that that's Europe freeloading, that we've always assumed that you would bail us out and you'd always assume that you would... Uh, uh, we have always assumed you would do our deterrence for us, and I accept that that is morally dubious. But there's a degree of, of, of fear now about what do we do, Europe, uh, if the US isn't there to back us up, if we can't rely on the US nuclear umbrella, and if we certainly can't rely on the uh, free supply of munitions, spare parts for all those F-35s that we bought and are bringing into service and everything, you know, because... Uh, a future U.S. administration might just not think that this is a, a high priority. So this is this is sea change stuff. It's very, I mean, as an analyst, it's fascinating to watch. It's pretty depressing to listen to because 
I didn't expect to hear this in my lifetime. And this is taking me back to, you know, many decades ago when, when the Cold War was um, was pretty serious. Um, I would uh, point out that folks in the very beginning of this were saying that the Russians have a tendency of losing 10 battles in a row and eventually winning the war and that they were gearing up war production. We've covered it elsewhere on this platform on a very regular basis. Nobody should be surprised. One has gone to a full war footing and a war economy uh, with the support of its allies and partners, such as they are, whether it's the North Koreans with artillery shells, they may have high failure rates, but they got a lot of artillery shells, uh, whether it's from the Iranians and the unmanned systems they're getting. And then, of course, the might of Chinese industry, uh, which is servicing both ends of this um, e equation, uh, unfortunately. Ron and uh, Richard, I want to give you an opportunity to comment on anything that, that Sash uh, said. We didn't get into the Zaluzhny uh, 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 issue uh, either, but I want to get your take in the time that we have on, on the U.S. Army's future armed reconnaissance aircraft cancellation. After spending billions uh, of dollars, the Army decided last week to cancel uh, FARA, uh, which is the second of the two legs of the long-running future vertical lift initiative. The other one was the future long-range assault aircraft, uh, which Bell uh, won uh, in uh, uh, 2022. Bell and Sikorsky have been competing for uh, FARA. A uh, lot of questions about the validity of that program, and it was championed and driven by the last uh, Army uh, Chief of Staff, General uh, Jim McConville, a visionary and Army aviator, who saw this as a great opportunity to get a more reliable, higher availability, lower cost to operate uh, airplane uh, in that manned role, uh, as opposed to having uh, Apaches doing it, which unfortunately have always been plagued by low availability and high cost per, per, per flying hour. With the cancellation, Doug Bush, the Army acquisition executive, said $4.1 billion goes for other initiatives, whether the smart Blackhawk, right, um, you know, certainly giving uh, some business uh, to Sikorsky that was frustrated in the in the wake of losing uh, uh, Flora, and even supporting and putting some more money into Flora, which was a concern that that aircraft would, would go away. Ron, start us off. What are the mechanics of this and the bizarre logic of of dumping billions and billions of dollars i mean they should have just given that money to the air force um which you know at this point given they're sort of hitting their marks might have been actually able to more use that money accelerate tankers or bombers or whatever else we need that we know is going to work right given the air force doesn't really have a tendency of launching programs to nowhere discuss yeah. Yeah, I think you know a couple of things. I don't think it was all that surprising that Faro went away. I mean, there've been a fair amount of speculation, as you know, about you know the the aircraft, the mission, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the 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 money that was spent and, and on Ukraine it. lessons, right? Which we've yeah. discussed on this program and elsewhere. Anyway, yeah, I mean, you, you put all that together, and 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 it's not all that surprising, right? So I don't I don't think anybody should have been surprised by it. Um, you know, it's a good thing that, you know, you know uh, the, the other component, uh, that, you know, the, the future long range Flora piece stayed intact, uh, and maybe gets a little upside from this. Um, so that's, you know, that, that, that's good news. Um, how army aviation has spent money on development over the years. I think, you know, I don't want to pick on them. Um, but you know, it, 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 I think we could, right. I mean, we could, we, we could pick on them, but we're not going to, uh, at least I'm not going to, um, yeah, so that that's an open question too. Um, when when you think about it from an investor point of view, I mean, ultimately, right? I mean, it's it's probably not great for Textron because they were, I think, seen as the lead horse on Flara. On one hand, however, on the other hand, it's good for Flara, which is good for Textron, right? So you know, mm -hmm. you, you lose a little, you get a little, right? Uh, maybe it's neutral, 
um, it's it's clearly a positive for um, for Lockheed and Sikorsky um, because it keeps the you know the the, the Blackhawk um, um, franchise around uh, for longer. Um, and I, I guess that's where we fall out. I mean, bad, the question... bad for Boeing because the Apache V goes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly, yeah, that's true. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, Richard. Um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I no, 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 I think it's kind of where it falls out. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we didn't get a ton of questions on it from investors uh, late in the week. And and let me correct myself. It's not the Apache V. I, my apologies. It's the Blackhawk uh, V. Richard, your your take on this debacle? I mean, I suppose it's better to cancel it now than build all of these airplanes and then end up canceling it. So, I mean, I guess you did save money, even if you did just spend an awful money you probably shouldn't have spent ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, not that you can transfer cash between the services all that readily, but, you know, what is the joke? 80% of Army rotorcraft programs give the other 20% a really bad name. I mean, this is just bizarre. <laughs> this is a mission that had been flown by cheap and cheerful Kiowa warriors and was clearly being overtaken by a combination of better satellite coverage and lots and lots of drones. Uh, along with, you know, whatever the Apache can do. Yes, in an ideal world, there'd also be a scout helicopter. But the idea of spending billions of dollars in non-recurring and then uh, buying aircraft that cost about $30 million each was just cloud cuckoo land. Not going to happen. Everyone involved ought to question what they were thinking, quite frankly. Now, having gotten that out of the way, Sikorsky has a nice consolation prize here, as they did in the aftermath of the Comanche's death when the Apache, when the Blackhawk uh, Mike was born. Um, and now, you know, not only did they get the additional cash coming off of the Farah budget for probably Blackhawks, but they also get the death of the Blackhawk Victor, which was being done by Northrop Grumman as an upgrade to the existing fleet, which, of course, frees up space both in the force structure and the budget profile for new build. So it's not without benefit, although this is probably the death of the coax pusher concept after many, many years and losing Flora. Now Flora is dead. So it's hard to see how that will be reborn. OK, really quick uh, lightning round. I'm going to run is going to get the last one. But first, uh, Sash, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, relieved uh, the popular uh, Valery Zaluzhny uh, of his command as the chief of uh, Ukraine's uh, defense forces and replaced him by the former ground forces commander, Alexander Sirsky, uh, who is somewhat less popular with the troops than Zaluzhny uh, was. Um, given his hard driving style, it comes at a critical time. Ukrainian forces are running out of ammunition, running out of troops, uh, while the Russians are actually building up and fielding more capability and a lot of worries about what's to come next, especially as Washington dawdles uh, with with more aid. As a student of military history and a, and a, and a former soldier, um, what, what's your sense in terms of the magnitude of the shift and what it means? Or can they innovate their way through this? Ultimately, right. I mean, there are those who say Zaluzhny was in charge of a counteroffensive that failed. And so it's not unreasonable, however popular he is, to go with new leadership. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, look, it's not either or. Innovation is going to be uh, an incredibly important part of whatever uh, Ukraine does off and on the battlefield uh, in the coming months and years. Um, more broadly, this is the unedifying site of democratic control of the armed forces. Uh, which is that politicians ultimately uh, have the right and they, you know, they, they bear the democratic responsibility uh, for deciding who's going to be in charge. And um, history is littered with examples of generals who either did a, a good job, but 
stuck their head way too far above the parapet or did an okay job but were perceived not to have done a good enough job and politicians just you know removed them winston churchill um you know he just went through generals at the most astonishing rate uh shocking rate and sacked many good generals as men as as well as quite a few poor ones but uh you know you're, you're the only the us's own example of douglas macarthur is a classic example of a general who who may or may not have been popular, but you know he took on uh, political power a little bit too much, and um, you know I, as a, as demo, as a you know somebody who believes in democracy, I think that was out of order, and that's why he was sacked. Uh, I don't think there's any, a great deal more we can say about this. Ultimately, you know Ukraine's problem is that, as you say, there's just not enough ammunition around, not enough materiel around at the moment, uh, and not enough people uh, around either. Uh, well, it's a, country of, it's a country of 44 million. Uh, they will call up a huge proportion of those. Um, unfortunately, their opponent is three times the size. Um, they therefore need our materiel to compensate for this for that disparity. That's the those are the horrible uh, numbers. The other horrible number being that otherwise, in offense or defense, they have to kill three times as many people as they as they lose. Uh, which uh, they have been doing a, a fairly uh, good uh, job of. Um, right, uh, Sash, thanks very much. And uh, Ron, you get the last one. Uh, is Scott Kirby just bluffing given about the prospect of canceling the United uh, Max 10 uh, order, right? It's, I think, the biggest Max 9 operator, and it has um, uh, an order for 100 Max tens. What's what's your sense on this? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't have a dialogue with Kirby, but this would be my best educated guess. Um, yeah, very serious. Um, it, you know, it's they're they're not negotiating in public. I, I think you can say that about um, several of the operators who um, have been very vocal about the situation um, that they're in uh, with the seven three seven Max. Um, so my my sense is, as an outsider is, yeah, I, I would take Kirby at his word. Um, and, you know, in Dublin uh, a week ago, uh, kind of the talk of the town was, um, you know, will United you know, be able to get some more uh, A321s if they do? What's that mean? Um, so it's open question. And, and what you have to bear in mind is a couple of things. Uh, th there was talk this past week in Seattle and talk in Dublin. Um, and again, this is just, you know, you know, Industry, industry watchers and players and that sort of thing and, and some speculation here that you know what's the future of the dash seven uh, given that you know the majority of those are just southwest and it's it's a very very small piece of the 737 max backlog right. and then ultimately what is the future of the max 10 if united were to do something different um so so we'll see but um and, and you know and to be clear i don't know what united's going to do but i'm certain his remarks were um yeah, clearly, yeah, that, that's they're they're not happy. Uh, I think even right. if you ask the Boeing folks, you know, you know, conversation we had with a Boeing executive this past week was, uh, yeah, United's not happy. So, so we'll see where it all goes. But yeah, it's 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 serious. It's it's hard to see anybody happy. Uh, Michael O'Leary's not happy. Alaska's not happy. Delta's not happy. Uh, uh, right. I mean, so uh, 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 alas, we keep our fingers crossed and we hope for this great company to resume. Uh, and return to its preeminent uh, position. Everybody, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. A quick word to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Shifts, hosted by our very own 
Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. That program is sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Air Power podcast, also sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Thanks very much again. Hope everybody has uh, a great day, a great weekend, and look forward to welcoming you back on the program tomorrow for the Look Ahead show. Until then, hope you have a great day, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks very much.